Hello and welcome everyone to the Political Economy Forum. My name is Nicholas Wittstock and today we will talk about tyrannical dictators and shrewd politicians and what drives their behavior. With me today is Annie Mang. Annie is Assistant Professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Hello, Annie. Hey, Nicholas. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. I'm happy to be talking to you. We're very, very excited to have you on. Annie, you're the author of Constraining Dictatorship from Personalized Rule to Institutionalized Regimes. What's that book all about? Uh, so this is a book um, that is largely on the causes and consequences of autocratic regime institutionalization. Mm -hmm. um, so what I mean by institutionalization, regime institutionalization, is the creation of rules and structures um, that basically control the distribution of power at the very highest levels of the regime. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm primarily interested in the regime executive, right, what goes on at the very top. Um, and so the kind of fundamental question that this book really thinks about is how do how does executive power become constrained and institutionalized in dictatorships, right? So how do some countries go from a one-man personalist dictatorship um, into becoming an institutionalized system that's governed by rules and procedures mm. that can undergo multiple peaceful leadership transitions, right? Like how do these uh, institutionalized forms of autocracy emerge in the first place? Um, so um, concretely, some of the data that I collect and the data that I talk about in the book are things like um, constitutional rules, um, so things like constitutional term limits and succession procedures. Um, I also uh, have, I collected original data also on the appointment of key figures in the presidential cabinet. So things like, was there a vice president appointed or was there a defense minister appointed? Um, basically, I'm interested in thinking about how and when executive constraints emerge, whether these are kind of, you know, formal constitutional rules on paper or kind of informal power sharing arrangements where the leader has to share power with other members of his cabinet um, when he makes these cabinet appointments. Um, so the first half of the book is thinking about kind of how these constraints emerge in these very kind of inherently weakly inst uninstitutionalized settings, right? Like, how do we get the birth of institutions in these types of settings, basically? Um, and then the second half of the book um, then talks about, okay, so then what are the consequences of having these types of executive constraints, right? Because, you know, as someone who studies authoritarian institutions, a question that I get all the time is, do these parchment institutions even mean anything in dictatorships, right? Or like, are we just looking at useless pieces of paper? Um, so that's, that's exactly what I consider in the second half of the book, right? Um, do institutionalized regimes actually perform better on a bunch of outcomes that we care about? Things like uh, the length of leader duration, vulnerability to coups, the likelihood that there's going to be a peaceful leadership transition. Um, and so there, I find that these institutionalized regimes um, do perform better, um, but the important part is we actually have to think about what type of leaders are more likely to institutionalize in the first place because these institutional decisions are endogenous. Um, so what's really interesting is here is where the first half of the book really helps us think about the second half of the book, right? And so I think one of the big takeaways um, when we kind of take a step back and think about some of the implications here is we really need to think about why and how institutions come to be when we are thinking about the effects that these institutions then have on these kind of broader issues of, of durability. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of generally the type of puzzles that the book mm. is trying to tackle. Perfect, yeah, thank you so much. I think one question that um, a lot of my um, maybe non-political scientist friends would immediately have is, hold on, I don't really understand, aren't, dictators uh, generally uh, defined by the fact that they don't really have any constraints on uh, decision-making power? Like, what? why are we talking about this in this way? Like, why would they ever give up any power? And are we then not talking about a different regime? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I teach a, I've been teaching a seminar on authoritarian regimes uh, for the last five years. And on the first day of class, I always ask my students before I say anything, I say, write down a country you think of when I say the word dictatorship, right? I don't define the term for them. I don't explain anything. I'm just like, what country comes to mind? Um, and a, a, a very common answer that I get is North Korea, right? right? And so I think a really important thing to understand is that the modern dictatorship does not look like North Korea uh -huh. anymore. This is one of the biggest like, and most important findings that the recent literature on authoritarian regimes that's come out in the last 20 years has basically showed us. The average dictatorship now is, has become really good at appearing democratic or mm. at kind of like pretending to take on a lot of democratic attributes. So the average dictatorship now holds multi-party elections. The average dictatorship now has opposition parties. They have functioning legislatures. Um, they have a constitution that may include term limits, mm. right? They have all of these attributes that we kind of have come to associate with democratic rule precisely because, um, you know, after the end of the Cold War, norms shifted in a way where it just suddenly became way less okay to kind of like outwardly be a very personalist totalitarian dictator. And so these leaders both kind of had to adapt to these changing norms, but also more importantly, these leaders also learned that by having some degree of constraints and by having some degree of power sharing with other elites, that actually strengthens authoritarian rule. So a one-man personalist dictatorship is incredibly unstable, um, especially, so not only is the dictator um, at higher risk of being deposed in a coup as a personalist dictatorship, um, these types of regimes always or almost always fail to survive past that one personalist leader, right? It's re these regimes have a really hard time carrying on after this very charismatic, you know, founding leader dies. Um, and so what regimes have learned is that it's actually kind of in their own best interest um, to have some of these power sharing mechanisms where it's like, it's closer to kind of joint rule with a group of elites, as opposed to just having a single unconstrained leader. Um, the other really interesting thing about North Korea um, is, which I'm not an expert on North Korea, <laughs> but, um, but, even though we kind of think of North Korea as the kind of typical, like very, you know, repressive and like unconstrained regime, what I will say is they have managed to go through several leadership transitions, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, so I suspect that North, even places like North Korea probably have, you know, probably are a little more institutionalized than we give them credit for, right? Being able to survive multiple leadership transitions is not a trivial challenge. Um, so I, I always, you know, as someone who is like an outsider mm. looking in, that's just something that I suspect. Right. It might be hard to tell from the outside too, right? Like what institutional settings, what institutional structures exist on the back end of those regimes. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you, could you give us some examples of these uh, paradigmatic new kinds of dictatorships? And an additional question to that, um, is it really the case that dictators or dictatorships deliberately create these power sharing agreements or are they somehow forced to uh, create them uh, because internal um, elites, uh, because elites uh, push them to do so? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, let me let me give some kind of concrete examples first. Mm -hmm. um, so 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 I focus on Sub-Saharan Africa for a lot of my work. Um, so a very typical case that I often look at a lot is, for example, um, think about Tanzania, mm -hmm. right? Um, the ruling party has been in power basically since independence in the 1960s. Um, but there's a lot of turnover, right? They have had multiple presidents. Um, opposition parties compete regularly. Um, they often lose, but, you know, they're still allowed to compete. Um, you know, there's a functioning legislature. Um, they, you know, there's a constitution and the constitution has very clear rules about, um, you know, succession procedures. Um, there's, you know, there's presidential turnover on a really regular basis. 
Um, and so this is what the kind of more standard authoritarian regime looks like. Um, you know, Cameroon is another very typical case, right? Um, you know, they, um, there are multi-party elections. There's multiple opposition parties in Cameroon. Um, you know, they, um, they, had, they have a constitution, again, with clear succession procedures. There's been leadership turnover. Um, interestingly, in Cameroon, there were term limits. Uh, the, pre the current president, Paul Bia, actually overturned or that he got rid of term limits back in 2008. Um, so there's been some kind of backsliding there. Uh, but again, you know, fairly kind of, you know, normal looking and functioning um, institutions, legislatures, parties, elections, um, you know, they, they, both of these cases kind of have all of these things, right? And, you know, in both of these cases, um, the leader is, you know, not like a one man standalone leader, right? Even someone like Paul Bia, um, who, you know, was able to remove term limits, um, he still has to strike a lot of power sharing deals with other elites, right? He has mm -hmm. to, um, you know, he has to make his cabinet appointments. And um, so I think that this kind of old model of one person standing alone has actually become um, a lot more rare, even in cases that we consider fairly authoritarian. Uh, but to your other question about, okay, so, um, you know, why do leaders um, want to create these own, these constraints on their own power, right? Um, so they definitely do it under duress. They basically do it under pressure from other elites. Um, and so the argument that I make in the book is that um, what happens in the first couple of years when a leader first comes to power is actually really crucial. Huh. Um, because I argue that leaders who come to power initially weak and are at high risk of being overthrown by other elites, these are the guys that really have to essentially buy the support of their fellow elites by institutionalizing the regime and by kind of regularizing these other elites' access to parts of the state. So for instance, if we think about um, these uh, cabinet appointments, right? Um, you know, if an elite is, so if I'm the leader and if I'm kind of at high risk of being overthrown by elites, by the way, I'm not even talking about opposition elites. I'm talking about your own regime elites, right? People from your own party, mm. um, which we know empirically actually pose the greatest threat, right? So autocrats are overthrown by their own party members, by their own regime elites all the time, right? Mm. Dictators really actually have no friends. It kind of sucks to be a dictator. Um, so if I'm a dictator and I um, am, and you know, I'm kind of threatened by my own regime elites, one thing that I can do is I can say, okay, look, let's try to rule together, right? I'll make you my vice president, uh. right? This cabinet post comes with a lot of material resources and funding. Um, either, you know, this vice president can like pocket some of it or the vice president can channel these funds to his own supporters or kind of you know, pursue whatever development projects they wanna pursue, right? They, it basically allows, it basically buys off the person who would have been threatening you, right? Same thing with the defense portfolio, same thing with kind of other key positions within the cabinet. Um, we can also think of essentially the same thing going on with constitutional rules that also regularize um, elite access to these key state appointments, right? So in, in this sense, we can think about leadership succession rules as a rule that decides basically who gets to access the highest position in the state, mm -hmm. right? Um, so weak leaders who otherwise would have faced high risk of being overthrown by elites can basically buy their support by kind of inviting them to join him in the regime um, therefore kind of institutionalizing the regime by kind of creating these constraints and power sharing mechanisms um, and avoid being overthrown. Um, so the corollary is that initially strong leaders, so leaders who come in basically already having consolidated power or who really just don't face very many threats from other elites, um, these are the guys that basically can stay in power regardless of what they do regardless of whether they have, you know, these constraints or not. Um, so these initially strong leaders are the ones that don't make mm. these kind of olive branch offers to other elites, right? Um, also, what's really interesting is um, these decisions are often made early on in the leader's tenure. So what I see in my data is that 
Um, the majority of these different kind of types of constraints are actually implemented within the first three to five years mm -hmm. of the leader coming into office, right? So these institutional decisions are made at the beginning, but they end up being binding. And so they end up actually structuring and shaping the rest of the leader's tenure while he's in office, right? So there's this interesting kind of, you know, we call it like a, like a critical juncture or like a path dependency flavor to the argument here. Um, um, where the kind of beginning period is really crucial um, and it really shapes the regime's trajectory. Interesting. So what happens when those leaders break the rules that they set out for themselves at the beginning of their tenure? That is a super fascinating question. Um, so there's basically, um, so there's essentially kind of two different consequences of leaders trying to break rules, right? So, um, so what I do in this book is, in this first book, is I focus way more on kind of how these rules emerge. Um, in my newer work, um, in, in kind of a second book project that I'm now starting, I'm thinking about the opposite now, right? Like under what circumstances can leaders kind of break these rules or remove these rules? Um, so I'm happy to kind of talk about some of my more preliminary thoughts on that. Oh, please, um, yeah. But but the other kind of situation that's really interesting to think about um, is leaders who try to break the system and fail, right? So this is kind of what I focus more on in the first book, um, because for the most part in the first book, you know, I make the claim that for the most part, these power sharing arrangements are pretty sticky, right? And, and the reason why they are pretty sticky and durable is because what makes them credible is the fact that these elites are basically being empowered when they're giving these cabinet positions, right? When you make someone your defense minister, you're basically giving them control of the military, right? Mm. I mean, this isn't a trivial handout. Um, and so, you know, a really important kind of theoretical part of the argument is that, you know, the reason why these institutions truly constrain is because they are actually empowering these other elites. And so these other elites can kind of use their newfound stature and influence as well as their access to material resources to really kind of be able to hold the leader in check. Um, so a really fun and uh, a really fun kind of like anecdote that I talk about in my book um, is in the case of Cameroon, um, basically um, one thing that happened was the founding leader, Ahijo, um, had he created constitutional succession rules um, that basically specified that his vice president was going to be would be the successor. Mm -hmm. um, and so Akijo ended up retiring um, voluntarily because he thought he had health issues going on. And so power was transferred, you know, like on paper um, to his constitutional successor and vice president, Paul Bia, who's now still the president. Um, and so uh, what, what's really interesting is after the transition happened, Ahijo, the, the first leader, thought that he could basically kind of control Bia and like stay in power behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, but it just didn't work, right? Like because the rules that he created shut him out, right? Like Bia was empowered by being the vice president and then now being the constitutional successor as the new president, uh, you know, Bia basically was able to consolidate power relatively quickly when he first, when the transition first happened, and Ahijo basically was not able to, you know, just like control him like a puppet, like he wanted to, right? And so he kind of like tried to come back. Ahijo was like, just kidding, I feel great now. Health problems are over. And he like really tried to kind of maneuver his way back into the regime and it really, and it just didn't work. He was shut out by the rules that he created originally, right? And it even kind of escalated to the point where there was like an attempted coup attempt that was linked to Ahijo and it failed and Bia ended up exiling him. Right. And so I just think that that's a really interesting kind of example about how an institution that a dictator created um, ended up, you know, just kind of like working against him when he tried to get around the system. That's fascinating. You were also mentioning that a lot of the mo modern dictatorships include what seem to be democratic institutions. So. Uh, could you speak to why a ruler would allow opposition parties to be institutionalized or even go so far as to um, effectively give the franchise to the masses, right, and allow elections to take place? Like, well, how, how does that fit in? What's the rationale yeah. here? 
That's a great question. Um, so a, a couple of thoughts here. Um, so so let, me, let me talk about um, kind of um, f- franchise meant. Um, then let me talk about suffrage and then let me talk about opposition parties. Okay. Um, so the first thing to keep in mind about just kind of letting everyday people vote is that oftentimes suffrage is pretty limited, mm. right? So, you know, I teach a class on democratic erosion um, and I, I love putting America in a comparative context. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the first things I always remind my students is that even though, you know, America has supposedly been democratic from the start, um, suffrage was extremely limited, right? We only allowed, you know, rich white guys to vote with land to vote at the very beginning, right? That was like a very small fraction of the population, right? Women couldn't vote until the 1920s and black people basically couldn't vote until the passage of the VRA in the 1960s, right? And so the first thing to consider is that, you know, these these quote unquote democratic transitions are often very controlled and very restricted, right? Um, And um, there's, you know, there's a great book out by, by Victor actually, um, and his co-author that I love that really talks about how it's these outgoing elites that control the democratic process and they totally control it and contrive it to entrench their own power, right? And so I think that- uh, Sorry, this is uh, Albertus and Minaldo 2018, correct? Yes, that's right. Sorry, Um, I didn't mean to interrupt, sorry. No, 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 you're you're fine. Um, And, you know, and so I think that we often have like maybe too rosy of a picture of democratization. And so I think that it's just really important to remember that. Um, the other thing that's really important to remember about, um, you know, quote unquote democratic transitions and allowing everyday people to vote is that leaders still have so much leeway in kind of controlling things behind the scenes so that the deck, the deck is really stacked against the opposition before voters are even going to the polls on election day, right? And so um, what I actually look at in some newer work, so I have a working paper um, where um, we basically look at how leaders co-opt opposition members, opposition leaders, uh, by offering them a cabinet seat. And it's really kind of like scarily effective, right? So basically what happens is um, one of the main challenges to new democracies is building strong opposition parties and kind of building strong opposition coalitions, Uh right? And so what we find is that leaders are really good at kind of fracturing the opposition um, by basically kind of like dangling cabinet seats to in front of potential opposition leaders. And so all these opposition leaders end up being like, okay, you know what, I'll just, I'll take the handout, Mm. right? And so it makes it really hard for a kind of strong and cohesive opposition coalition to form um, because basically all these guys are just being bought off, right? And what's also really scary about this um, is that this is perfectly legal and it's not illicit, right? This, these, this is just, this is a strategy where leaders are just inviting people to join their cabinet. And this is a really, and this is actually the kind of main way in which a lot of quote unquote democratic backsliding occurs nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Leaders are using constitutional strategies, perfectly legal strategies um, to, you know, basically take their existing incumbency, incumbent advantage and basically stack the deck even more against opposition. Um, And so I think that that's really important to remember that, you know, yes, there is still ballot stuffing, you know, in plenty of elections and there are plenty of illicit um, kind of techniques going on, but a lot of leaders don't even need to go there, right? Right. Like they're able to just use a lot of these kind of perfectly legal strategies um, to maintain their grip on power. Okay, so let me ask you, um, would, would you, wouldn't you then still say that you could also interpret this as just a very slow democratization process of sorts? Um, I mean, you mentioned um, Albertus and Minaldo, but I mean, even if you, if you, if you think about how democratization happened in the uh, case of the, of the United Kingdom, right, I think there is a very slow process of elites trying to gain political advantage vis-a-vis uh, rulers that used to be less constrained 
And over a very long time period, that slowly creates more and more inclusive uh, democratic institutions. Um, couldn't you somehow put a positive spin on these kind of developments? Yeah. So I think that it's I think that it's totally possible um, that what we're seeing is really slow democratization. Um, I yeah. So I I think that that's totally possible. Um, I think that what's maybe a, I think that what we should be careful of, and I think that maybe what's happened a little bit, and I think it's maybe like dangerous to think this way, um, is. You know, and I think that this was really true in the 1990s at the end of the Cold War, where I think we kind of had this checklist in mind where we were like, okay, multi party elections, opposition parties, like check, check, right? Where it was this very thin understanding of democracy and democratization. And we just kind of, you know, we had a couple of like easy checklist items, right? And what's also really damaging was that like a lot of foreign aid was tied to these like, checklist items that were fairly easy to implement and, and but still allow these, you know, autocratic elites to stay in power. And I think that that's really dangerous because, um, and this is kind of precisely the argument that I make in the book, not only have these leaders learned the language of democracy mm. and they've learned how to do these pretty superficial checklist items, um, you know, to a certain extent, um, semi-democratic rule is also stabilizing for these autocracies, right? And so I think that it can be very difficult for us to separate a very slow and gradual democratization process versus a, a, a highly institutionalized mm. um, dictatorship, right? That is That can survive in power for a really long time precisely because they've introduced these power sharing mechanisms. Right. And so I think that we need to be careful there and understand that there is a difference, but it's tricky because it often is very hard to separate out these two types of cases. Right. Yeah, I think that's really the incredibly insightful and important point of your work to say that this is actually making these regimes much more stable. Right. I think that's really the kicker. Right. That that's really yeah. so important to keep in mind. Um, at the same time, I would still want to ask you, um, is it not the case that life for the average citizen has become considerably better in these regimes? That's a really interesting question. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think what's, I think what's so tricky about, you know, when you're a political scientist studying a kind of a horrible topic like dictatorship is, you know, I, it, it's, it's tricky, right? Because I think on one hand, it's really important to kind of point out and remember that democracies don't necessarily have better outcomes, right? right? And we know that from existing research, right? Democracies are not necessarily more equal. They don't necessarily redistribute more. Um, you know, they aren't necessarily less corrupt, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so on one hand, I think that it's, you know, I think we should be careful about kind of, you know, having this like overly simplistic view of like democracy is great for everyone, autocracy is bad for everyone. You know, on the other hand, it's tricky because I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm not like condoning dictatorship, but I, you know, I definitely don't think it's great that, you know, the political freedom of people living under dictatorships, you know, are, are severely restricted or even a little restricted. Um, so, you know, I think that this question of whether, you know, outcomes are better in terms of and I don't know, economic growth or, mm. um, you know, corruption or public goods distribution and stuff like that. I mean, I think that these are kind of empirical questions um, that, you know, a lot of researchers are focusing on, um, you know, and, and it does seem like kind of good things come in bundles, right? So it does seem like the more institutionalized dictatorships often enjoy kind of higher levels of economic growth. And, you know, they may be like, uh, you know, perform better in part because, you know, you need to achieve like a basic level of government governance for your people, right? So, you know, it does seem like the general trend is that maybe life under a more institutionalized form of dictatorship is, is maybe better for, for the everyday person. Um, you know, I think that, um, but I think that this is an, an empirical question. Sure. I think that the other thing that is, um, the other thing to consider is that durable forms of 
authoritarianism, i.e. these institutionalized autocracies, can probably last for a really long time, right? And so that means that political rights and freedoms are mm-hmm. going to be restricted for a really long time. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I don't specialize in thinking about normative questions, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that there's just some interesting and important kind of normative implications to kind of try to think through there. Absolutely. Um, and I, people smarter than me, um, I think, you know, I, I leave this task to people smarter than me. <laughs> it certainly seems like a, an extremely, I don't know, Faustian bargain to say, okay, well, maybe, you know, some, on some level, your, your outcomes related to yeah, economic growth or whatever are going to be slightly improved, but we're going to uh, keep political and civil rights completely out of reach for for the foreseeable future. And and that's the trade you get. That doesn't seem very attractive to me personally. And and I think that's what you're trying to convey. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think this is an extremely fascinating discussion because uh, interestingly, I think it's especially scholars of autocracy who are in the best position to really tell you how to best game and um, unhinge democracy, right? So I'd be really curious to hear about um, what you have learned from studying autocracies or dictatorships about what it takes for democratic institutions to be actually meaningful. That's a great question. Um, So I think the most important part about Um, institutional effectiveness. I think what really gives institutions bite Mm -hmm. is not necessarily, you know, that they exist on paper, but it's whether they are actually arming the actors involved and whether they're actually shifting the underlying power, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, one example that I think is really um, uh, kind of informative that I look at is um, I basically, you know, let's think about the two types of constitutional rules that I focus on in the book. So let's compare constitutional succession rules and constitutional term limits right? Not all constitutional rules are equally effective. This is a really important takeaway from my book, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And and here's the reason why. We really need to look at whether the rule is actually arming another actor and whether it's actually kind of changing the distribution of power. So with succession rules, when you have a constitutional succession rule that says, okay, um, you know, in the case of the president's death or incapacitation, for instance, it's the vice president that is uh, the de facto successor. That's a really powerful rule because the rule clearly identifies the vice president as basically another really important person in the regime, right? And the rule kind of clearly identifies a hierarchy here. Okay, so let's compare this situation with constitutional term limits, okay? Mm -hmm. Constitutional term limits in the absence of a clear succession rule, all it is is just this kind of like blanket promise to step down, right? But let's say I'm the leader and I refuse, I violate term limits, but I haven't named a successor, then the elites will have a much harder time organizing, right? Because it's like, who is kind of like losing out the most, right? We haven't even figured out who the next president is. So if I'm the president and I want to just try to get rid of term limits without naming a successor, it's way easier for me to do that, right? Versus um, if I have a successor, it's the vice president, and then the president tries to get rid of term limits, then all of a sudden the vice president is like, whoa, hold on, hold on. It was my turn next. Right. And so the vice president would have a real incentive to try to prevent this. And what's really interesting is we see this play out in the cases. Right. We see cases, um, at least in sub-Saharan Africa, and, and this is actually new data that I'm currently in the process of coding. But we see cases where when presidents fail to overturn term limits, it is often because they had a constitutional successor that was the vice president. Mm-hmm. So it's all it's all about whether the rule actually arms another leader. It's all about whether you're changing de facto power. It's not about whether you just have rules written down on paper. That makes a lot of sense. So um, how many of those actors do you need to empower before you're actually at some institutional setting that approximates democracy? Like how 
how divided does power have to be? If that question makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. Um, wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, um, you know, it's also interesting because it's like, you know, at, at what point, I mean, obviously democracy and autocracy is, is a spectrum and it's, of course, it's yeah. also an interesting question in, in that, like, at what point does autocracy switch in a democracy? Yes. Right? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. And to be honest, I haven't quite thought about it in that way before. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, because you know, I'm always asking myself, like, um, I really like your framework and, yeah. um, I think a simplified version of your much more complex framework is, I think, uh, Darren Asimoglu and uh, uh, James Robinson's uh, narrow corridor idea, right? Where like they have this idea of like, okay, well, you have um, you have society and you have the state, and you can you can have a, a despotic leviathan where you have the state that is overly powerful, right? Which which I'm assuming would approximate a dictatorship. And then you have a situation where society is way too powerful and you have something like um, anarchy effectively. Mm -hmm. And then you have this middle ground, like the narrow corridor where these two things check each other. And then you have something that is, um, you know, a powerful state but that is responsive to the demands of society. And that that's the narrow corridor in the middle. Um, so the question then is though, like at one point do I know as a citizen, right? Like wh when am I in this, in this sort of like equilibrium point, right? Where, they, where there are enough um, state actors that are responsive enough um, to society's demands uh, that we can properly call it something like a democracy. Yeah, so, you know, this is such a hard question. Um, I guess I would say the couple of kind of thresholds that I would look for is, mm. I mean, one, I think one really important um, uh, kind of observable thing is whether a loser is willing to step down, right? Whether right. a losing incumbent is willing to step down, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a lot of research in political science talking about this, and it's like a debated criterion. Um, but I personally, um, like, really believe in it, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think that this is, um, so, you know, we call this the Botswana rule, right? Mm -hmm. um, the ruling party in Botswana, the BDP, um, you know, has always won the election, even though, you know, elections in Botswana are considered to be fairly free and fair, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's this tricky situation where it's like, we're not actually positive that the BDP would be willing to step down if they were to lose, right? And I, I, so I do personally subscribe to this idea that like, we really need to like wait until we can observe this to check. Um, so, you know, I think that that is, you know, a really important indicator. I mean, I think that the kind of conventional way that in which dictatorship and democracy is often separated is, you know, is, you know, can the everyday citizen vote and does the, and does the, um, you know, do the elections seem free and fair, right? So unfortunately, I, I think that we're starting to get into really muddy territory nowadays um, because, and this really goes back to my earlier point about how the main way in which incumbents are entrenching their power is not through like fraudulent ballot stuffing mechanisms, right? But it's it's through perfectly legal and constitutional channels. And, um, you know, so I, I actually think that, you know, there's this kind of, you know, there's this new and very, you know, um, trendy literature now on democratic erosion that I'm, you know, I'm starting to work on as well. And what I think is, I think that there is a huge tension in the research right now that we really need to reconcile, which is this tension between whether we want to focus on democratic procedures or democratic outcomes, right? And the and and let me put this in more concrete terms, right? So um, I, I have a I have an article where I um, look at term limit evasion, um, and but what we do is we basically just document the ways in which term limit evasion happens nowadays, and the big finding is term leaders primarily use. Um, constitutional channels to get rid of term limits, right? They pass a, you know, they get it passed in the legislature to remove term limits from the constitution, or they have the Supreme Court reinterpret the constitution, mm. right? But like this kind of old method of just like canceling elections or just, you know, 
outright ignoring the constitution, this just really isn't used anymore, right? Like leaders are just way smarter about that. And so they're using perfectly democratic procedures for anti-democratic ends, or at least like arguably anti-democratic ends, right? And so it's this really interesting and somewhat confusing dilemma now, because it's like, if an anti-democratic outcome is achieved via a, a constitutional, via a, a democratic procedure, what, what is that even, right? Like, is that democratic erosion? I don't know. Like, should we focus more on procedure or outcome, right? And so I think that what's really tough is that not only does this conflict um, like, does it, not only does this conflict exist in the research right now that we haven't really untangled, yeah. I think that it potentially also exists in just like the minds of everyday people, right? Where it's just, it's really hard to figure out like what democratic erosion is. And we also have a, some research showing that um, partisanship and polarization can really get in, can really get in the way, right? Mm. So Milan Spolik has research showing that, um, you know, when, um, society is highly polarized, um, voters, um, you know, may prioritize partisanship and just like keeping their own guy in power over some kind of theoretical love of democracy, right? And so you can also imagine how partisanship might be interacting with this very confusing world that we're in where leaders are using perfectly legal strategies, right? And so one can totally imagine an everyday citizen being like, well, I like, it's probably fine, right? Like my guy mm. used the courts to do it and that's a democratic institution, yeah. right? So like, that's probably fine, right? And so I think we're, we're now in this really murky territory. And I think that we really need to figure out what democratic erosion is. I could not agree more, right? I think it's, it's really, really complicated. We're not, unfortunately, as you're describing in this world where we can say, okay, well, if it's the case that um, an incumbent is willing to step down, you know, we're in a uh, we're in a democracy and everything is fine, right? Because it's exactly as you're saying, right? If it's possible for the incumbent who's outgoing to rewrite the job description of the new guy coming or or woman or whoever coming in, right? Well, then then we, clearly this is a new regime now, right? Like clearly, like the, the rules have fundamentally changed. We need to somehow take that into account. Um, I could not agree more. Uh, how do you think, I mean, obviously this relates hugely to the U.S. case. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your students ask you about this, and it, it may not feel very good as a uh, dictatorship autocracy scholar to talk a lot about the U.S., right? But I think that's really the, the, the reality of, of, um, that we're living through. Like, what's, what do you usually tell your students? Um, I, oh, I love I love ranting about how <laughs> I love ranting about how authoritarian the U.S. is, and I try to work it into every conversation. Oh, so, okay. um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, so actually, what's really interesting is, um, so as someone who studies dictatorship. Um, I actually have kind of like a strangely inverse reaction to the U.S. as everybody else. Mm. So I think what's really interesting is I think that the kind of like, you know, I, I think it's it's a more common reaction for people since 2016 um, to be like, oh, my God, we're so authoritarian mm. now. And I think it doesn't help that, like, you know, every day I read a new op-ed about mm. how, you know, democratic backsliding is happening in the U.S., right? What's really interesting is my perspective is almost the flipped, right? Mm. I am like, the U.S. has always been so autocratic, right? We actually have been getting more democratic recently, and that's why we're seeing really violent pushback, right? So mm. I argue that even if you subscribe to just minimalist procedural definitions of democracy as just being universal enfranchisement, right? The U.S. doesn't even get coded as a democracy until 1965, right? So we have only been a democracy for 55 years, okay? Um, furthermore, I would argue that the U.S. has actually become more democratic since then, right? Like we have been democratizing, right, as, um, you know, our, as Congress gets more representative, right, like as, you know, there has been, um, you know, I, I think that there's been kind of more attention drawn to the role of money in politics, right, to kind of quote unquote outsider candidates, right, to kind of women, 
uh, people of color who are slowly getting elected to Congress, I would argue that we've actually been democratizing more mm. in the last couple of decades. And so what we're seeing now is really violent pushback against you know, these increasing efforts of democratization from groups and citizens, so both elites and everyday people who used to benefit from the kind of old regime and old structures of power before a lot of these changes started happening, right? And so I actually have like a rosier picture mm. than most people where I, I think that we've been becoming more democratic. And that's why we're seeing what we see now. The other thing that's really important to note is, you know, I really want to push back against this narrative that like we were like a great democracy before and we only started backsliding in 2016. And that like, you know, there was suddenly just this like global, like, you know, rise of autocracy in 2016. That is not what I'm seeing in the data. Okay. So, I mean, for example, we didn't, the US didn't even have term limits until the 1950s, right? Like that's just such a basic executive constraint. It's one of the first things that I look at when I'm looking at my cases of dictatorship, right? And like, we didn't even have this really basic rule until the 1950s, right? And so, you know, I, I think that for a lot of reasons, like we just were not this perfect democracy. Um, and we probably never have been, right? Um, furthermore, you know, I really want to push back against this narrative that I see a lot, especially in these like op-eds, these like scary op-eds of like, oh my God, like suddenly everything changed in 2016. That is actually not what I'm seeing in the data. Um, so as I mentioned to you, um, you know, I'm now starting on my second book project, um, which is thinking about how constraints get removed, right? And basically thinking about the process of deinstitutionalization. Um, in, uh, in mostly in autocracies, but I've, I've actually also been collecting data on democracies as well. And what I see in the data is that I don't actually see an uptick in the removal of constraints in democracies or autocracies. Um, and, and so I think that's really important to note. Um, so for instance, um, you know, there's been stable levels of elite power sharing and cabinet appointments this whole time. Um, there's been fairly stable levels of cabinet appointments for opposition, right? So there's been fairly stable levels of opposition co-optation this whole time, right? What that indicates to me is that actually as these leaders and elites were um, kind of pretending to democratize in the 1990s, alongside the introduction of multi-party elections, they were also implementing these other strategies to kind of keep themselves in power while having these kind of new semi-democratic institutions as well, right? They were adapting as they were quote unquote democratizing, right? And so none of these things is new. Um, you know, with the removal of term limits, um, I see, you know, I see like a little bit of an increase in the last couple of years, but, but I do not see a really high jump. And certainly we are not returning back to like pre-1990 levels, right? Um, and so I think that it's important to, you know, just inform everyone that if we look at the data on executive mm. constraints, I am not seeing this like enormous increase in democratic backsliding or autocratic backsliding. It's possible that maybe what's changed is that, you know, leaders are suddenly, maybe they're like emboldened by Trump and, you know, a lot of these other like far right leaders, maybe they feel a little bit more comfortable being more explicit in their language. And so I think that that's an important, you know, change. But I think that we really need to be careful and precise about thinking about what's changing, right? Is it institutions? Is it norms? Is it language? And I think so far we haven't quite kind of unpacked these different dimensions yet. Um, and so as an institutionalist, um, I've been focusing on the institutions. Um, and so that, that's what I've been seeing. That is very thought provoking. Thank you very much. Um, let me ask you, I think in this whole conversation about autocratization, democratic deconsolidation, democratic backsliding, whatever you want to call it. We talk a lot about the US case. We talk a lot about um, yeah, specific countries that you've already uh, mentioned. 
What do you think is a geographic area that is um, not talked about enough? What do you think is an area that you think is very interesting that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves? Oh, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, interesting. Um, you know, I think the U.S. gets talked about way too much, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I think that it gets, um, you know, hailed as like a as, as a really unique case, um, which I, I don't necessarily think is true. Um, in terms of what doesn't get enough attention, you know, so I'm biased, right? Because a lot of my work is on Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I think, so what's really interesting is I think that the African region is kind of understudied, strangely enough, um, when it comes to these themes of kind of, um, when, it, when it comes to this theme of kind of, you know, um, uh, autocracy and authoritarian rule. Um, what we saw, what we see a lot on research in on Sub-Saharan Africa is, um, you know, there's a lot of research on kind of governance, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, that's hugely important too, right? Like public goods distribution, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kind of lives of everyday people. Um, but so, you know, we see a lot of research on governance. Um, you know, we see a lot of research on conflict. Um, and initially at the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, we did see a burst of research on these so-called democratic transitions in Africa. Um, but maybe just to kind of make a, make a case for, you know, what I study in the region that I study. Interestingly, I think that um, just the, the kind of shape and form and role of autocracy and autocratic government in sub-Saharan Africa has really actually been understudied. And this is kind of surprising to me um, because sub-Saharan Africa has been and continues to be authoritarian, Mm. right? Like for, you know, most of the 20th century and and now, right? Like, you know, virtually every country in sub-Saharan Africa was autocratic following independence in the 1960s. And, you know, most of them are remain, you know, some form of dictatorship now, whether it's a more institutionalized form or, you know, there's a few remaining kind of more personalist dictatorships in Africa. And I think that um, a lot of the, um, I think that a lot of the research on Africa, especially research that kind of, you know, thinks about governance or thinks about democratic um, you know, transitions or kind of democratic rule has really kind of thought about the kind of problems of the transitions. And, and a lot of the research is almost kind of like framed in, in thinking about, well, like the democratic transition was like incomplete or maybe mm. there's like problems with it, right? And I actually think that it would be helpful for us to kind of to, to kind of turn around the way we've been thinking about it. And rather than trying to understand these cases as problematic democracies, and thinking about, okay, like why is stuff not working out? We really need to understand these cases as durable or strategic autocracies, right? And then suddenly, I think it's a lot easier to understand why we see a lot of these outcomes that that we're seeing today, right? Whether it's political outcomes, economic growth, governance, conflict, et cetera, right? the other, you know, the other thing that's important to note is, um, you know, not only is dictatorship understudied when it comes to the African region, um, I also would argue that there aren't, I, I think that there aren't enough people focusing on Africa in the authoritarian regimes literature. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. So, and I think that this is like changing and I think that there's more, you know, I think that there's more scholars of autocracy who study Africa now, but um, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, when the, when this literature on authoritarian regimes was kind of revitalized in the early 2000s, um, the seminal cases that people built a lot of the theories on were cases like China, the Soviet Union, or 20th century Mexico, right? Mm. The problem is these are these are not the average autocracies. These are actually the outliers. These are extremely durable autocracies, right? And so I think that unfortunately, I think that some of the theories were kind of being driven by these super stable and hyper institutionalized cases as opposed to looking at the more kind of standard case, mm. which I would argue you know, exists in Africa. 
um, and, and kind of like really kind of developing theories there, right? And so, um, you know, for instance, you know, one of the really big arguments that came out in the, in the early 2000s was that ruling parties are really important for authoritarian stability, right? And so one can imagine how that argument kind of came to be because the ruling party in, uh, you know, the pre in Mexico, in the Soviet Union, in China, are really strong and institutionalized. And there's no doubt in my mind that these ruling parties drive regime durability in these cases, right? But the average ruling party is way weaker. And I talk about this in my book. The average ruling party actually can't survive past the death or departure of its founding leader, which then really should cast some doubt on how strong or organizationally autonomous these parties really are. Right. And so, you know, when we look at the cases in Africa, um, it then becomes much more apparent that the average ruling party is really not that strong. And the average ruling party in a dictatorship is often just kind of a mouthpiece for the leader. Uh. Right. And so that's kind of my case for really, you know, think taking African cases seriously. And, and you know, I, I hope that, you know, more, I, I hope that more scholarship focusing on Africa kind of continues to emerge in the comparative authoritarianism literature. Um, because I just think it's really important for us to kind of look at a wide range of cases when we're building theory. That makes a lot of sense. If um, speaking specifically about African cases, um, what can you learn about who the average leader or dictator in a dictatorship is? Who are these people? What are their motivations? And do you feel like the study of um, African cases um, gives a unique perspective of, uh, on the kinds of motivations that drive uh, what these people, people are trying to accomplish? Or is it really just reinforcing um, uh, common knowledge. These people just want to stay in power and um, reap economic benefits. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think that it's a really common assumption that we make um, that, yeah, you know, leaders um, want to stay in power and reap economic benefits. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's like, it's so hard to get at this question, right? Um, you know, one question that I get a lot is, because um, I look at a lot of post-colonial cases in Africa, is, well, you know, like, what about these, like, pro-independence mm -hmm. founding fathers, right? Like, who, like, were really trying to build a movement and who, like, really fought for independence and stuff. And, you know, it, it's probably true that some of these leaders, like, really did, um, you know, believe in what they were doing and really did want to try to kind of build a nation for, for their country and stuff like that. But, you know, what's really, I think what's really informative is in a lot of these cases, um, you know, these, like, independence fighters ended up being super predatory leaders, right? Like, think about Nkrumah in Ghana, right? He was ousted in a coup in just a couple of years after independence, and the couple of short years he was in power, um, he amassed a ton of wealth, right? Like, he was just, he was pocketing so much money for himself, mm -hmm. right? And, and Ghana had been one of the, like, really big kind of like, you know, pro-independence cases, right? And like, and Nkrumah had been like a real figure in the kind of push for independence. Um, and so, you know, it, it is really hard to try to get at what these leaders really want and like what drives them and their desires. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that it is informative that, you know, we see that even in mm. the most kind of like robust independence cases um, a lot of times after these leaders come in come to power um, you know they do seem to kind of like then behave in a way that are kind of like rationalist choice models predict right where it's like yeah. you know they want to get rents and they want to stay in power and stuff like that interesting uh annie if you were a dictator since you're the expert how would you go about diverting the institutions of a relatively like softly institutionalized a democratic regime to ultimately allow you to uh to pursue whatever you think is most important for the country 
Um, oh God. So first of all, <laughs> I don't, I don't actually want to be a dictator because being a dictator <laughs> okay, sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also, you know, I don't want to strip of course, people of their political freedoms, of but being a dictator sucks. <laughs> You're just constantly under threat of being overthrown. It seems very stressful. Um, and I, I don't want that for myself. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so, so I, you know, I feel like it's, it's, we're maybe tapping into this question of, you know, under what circumstances um, can leaders actually kind of remove constraints from their power, right, and kind of do whatever they want. Um, So, um, so I am still at like a super kind of preliminary and early stage of, of, of looking at this now. Um, And, um, so right now I have focused way more on kind of just collecting the data and right. seeing how, how they do it. Um, but on the more theoretical side, um, and a co-author and I are, are currently working on a paper trying to think about the, the kind of conditions under which it can happen. Um, and here, um, what we kind of suspect so far is actually somewhat counterintuitively, um, it's actually the kind of weaker leaders um, who have a, have the most incentive to try to remove constraints on their power when they can, precisely because um, it's just really hard for them to do so, and it's a really rare opportunity when they can. And so, weak leaders who kind of like you know just would normally have a really hard time removing constraints, removing these constraints when they kind of like see this little you know possible when this when they see this little like gap of possibility. They're, they're the ones who are going to go for it. Um, and so um, that's kind of like the theory that we've developed so far. Um, we're trying to kind of think of ways to test it now. And, um, you know, one of the age-old challenges that I dealt with in my first book, too, is just like how you measure when a leader is strong or weak, right? It's it's such a hard thing to measure. Um, and, you know, I'm not convinced that we have really figured that out yet in political science. Hmm. Um, yeah, but, you know, so so we're kind of like, we're, we're trying to look at some things like, um, you know, election results are kind of like share of the leaders ruling party in the legislature and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, trying to measure like whether someone is weak or strong and like when they have this little window of opportunity is um, it's, it's the bane of my existence. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's a challenge that's really ongoing. And I think we need a lot more research on this actually. Nice. Let's say you were God or you were, you had an infinite amount of money and there were no IRB restrictions or anything like that. What kind of experiment or research design would you want to construct to answer all your questions about authoritarian regimes that you have? Oh, that is really interesting. Wow. Mm, That's a good question. Let me think about that for a second. Um, Okay, so um, here's my answer. Um, So I am just like super fascinated with succession politics, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I talk about this in my book. Um, I also have some separate work on succession. Um, Also, I like binged, I rewatched Game of Thrones, all of it during (laughs) the pandemic. Um, You know, I just, I find succession to be so fascinating. it's an age-old problem, right? It's a. It is an age-old problem. Yeah, I mean, King Lear or uh, Macbeth or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's like a fundamental challenge in dictatorships, right? Um, so I have an article um, where I basically argue, and again, this goes back to this theme that I was talking about, how um, you know not all constitutional rules are equally effective, right? And you really have to think about the kind of substance of those rules. Um, so I have a separate article where I'm trying to understand um, when dictatorships are able to undergo peaceful leadership transitions and when they can't. And so the argument that I make there is I basically compare different types of constitutional succession rules. And I argue that constitutional succession rules that name the vice president as the successor are more effective at actually ensuring for a peaceful transition as opposed to constitutional succession rules that name a way less influential person as the successor. So for instance, some constitutional rules name the president of the legislature or 
or name like a Supreme Court justice or just kind of like a lower position in the regime, right? And so the argument that I make there is, you know, it's not just about rules on paper, it's thinking about how much the elite is kind of in power, right? Mm. So the argument that I'm making is that the vice president is a really powerful position. It's in the cabinet that these elites, these vice presidents have access to material resources. It's a much more influential position compared with if the constitutional rule names someone who's just kind of like way lower down in the regime, right? And so, but, and I find this to be true when I look at the data. So constitutional rules that designate the vice president as the successor are way more effective at promoting a peaceful transition compared with constitutional rules that designate some other like lower ranked person. Um, however, you know, the challenge with observational studies is there could be other factors going on, right? And so, uh, you know, I personally would just like be really fascinated to see if we had like an identical case and we could create like multiple universes where I just changed like one mm. word in the constitutional rule, you know, <laughs> and see what happens. Um, alternatively, I think something else that would be super fascinating too is, um, you know, in terms of succession, there's been a lot of research written about hereditary succession, right? And whether that can be like a really kind of peaceful way to kind of facilitate a peaceful transition. Um, interestingly, I actually don't find that hereditary succession in Africa is effective or common. So actually hereditary transfers of power in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where you would expect them to be common are really uncommon. They only happen in like five or 6% of the cases. Hmm. And actually you are, if you're a dictator in Africa, you're more likely to be overthrown by a family member than you are to pass to pa peacefully transfer power to a family member. So actually, hereditary succession is, you know, not necessarily a safe bet in Sub-Saharan Africa. But I think the other thing that would be cool is, you know, again, if we have this like identical case and, you know, we kind of like tried in, and we look to see whether hereditary succession could work. Um, you know, I, I think that these are just kind of like age old debates right. that exist. And, you know, obviously we can't really deal with them in an experimental setting. Um, and so just, you know, just because I'm so fascinated with succession, I think that'd be really interesting. That does sound fascinating. Annie, cool. Um, those are all my questions. Um, was there anything else you wanted to get to or? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Um, cool. I, I really, I really enjoyed all your questions. And um, I think that this has been a super interesting discussion. Absolutely. No, I think this went amazing. Um, so let me just do a quick outro then. Um, let me just say, uh, Annie Mang, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicholas. It was so great to talk to you. And thanks so much for having me on the pod. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Bitchduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.